Hallowell credits having majored in English for giving him the storytelling skills to explain complex science simply. He said, I didn't fit the mold of most medical students. They're science majors. I was an English major at Harvard before attending medical school at Tulane. Both sides of my brain were working. Hallowell came armed to television with the ultimate storyteller's weapon, a tool so potent it's nearly impossible to ignore. Analogy, the storyteller's secret weapon. The ancient Greeks introduced analogy as a powerful means of persuasion. Today, there's a new body of research looking at the power of analogy in product marketing. But for great storytellers, analogy has always been an essential part of their toolkit. An analogy is simply a comparison of how two things are alike. Analogy facilitates understanding because it makes abstract ideas more relatable. If a listener cannot relate to an idea, that person will find it difficult to remember the concept and unlikely to act on the information. Ed Hallowell uses analogies to bring clarity to complexity. For example, in addition to the Ferrari brain, Hallowell relies on several other analogies to explain ADHD to non-medical audiences. As ADD folks, we have new ideas all the time. It's like a popcorn machine. That's an analogy. Here's another one. Take someone to a farm and leave them there for a week. If you come back a week later and they've turned the farm into an amusement park, it's ADHD. If they're quietly relaxing on the porch, it was a severe case of modern life. And here's another one. The mind of an ADD person is like a toddler on a picnic. It goes wherever the mind leads it without any regard for danger or authority. Sometimes it goes off and gets into trouble. Other times it's discovering penicillin. And finally, telling someone with ADHD to try harder is like telling someone who's nearsighted to squint harder. It's not a matter of effort and will. It's a matter of how you're wired. I hope you can see how analogies are the building blocks of an effective narrative intended to explain complex subjects simply. Analogies help us understand material that we know little about because we can associate the content with something we do know something about. Personal Stories Grab Attention When Dr. Ed Hallowell first appeared on the Today Show, a producer told him to remember he's competing for the viewer's attention. How do you get viewers to pay attention when they are otherwise preoccupied with children, chores, or computer work? Hallowell has learned that nothing is as attention-grabbing as revealing personal stories and experiences. For example, Hallowell readily admits he has ADHD and dyslexia. He says so in every conversation, and he does not wait to be asked. Ed Hallowell said, I'm all about transparency and personalizing a discussion. You really grab people when you tell them something about yourself, especially if it's something offbeat, like, I have ADD. I tell stories to connect with my audience. When they leave my lectures, I want them to take away the points, but I also want them to be hopeful and inspired. That happens through connection. According to an essay in the Journal of the American Medical Association, many medical experts shun individual stories in favor of data that they use to bolster their argument. It's too bad, because as we have seen, stories are important tools for education. And what more important education is there than that related to our health? Dr. Zachary Maisel says that narratives in the form of storytelling, testimonials, and entertainment have been shown to improve individual health behaviors in multiple settings. He says that facts and figures are essential in healthcare debates, but not nearly enough to encourage people to change their behavior. In the winter of 2015, a disease that had been nearly eradicated made a roaring comeback. The United States saw its worst measles outbreak in 20 years because thousands of parents had opted out of vaccinating their children. The measles vaccine was introduced in 1963. Before that, 
500,000 children got the measles every year, and hundreds of them died. The situation so threatened the public health that the Centers for Disease Control and the White House did not take any chances. Appearing on the Today Show, President Barack Obama called the science indisputable. Obama urged parents to, quote, look at the science, look at the facts. This well-intended statement likely did not have the result he hoped, because leaders often rely on emotionless facts to influence people who are emotional beings. The CDC director, Dr. Tom Frieden, appeared on CBS's Face the Nation to warn Americans the country could see a large outbreak of measles. He, too, gave viewers plenty of facts, but no individual stories. Despite the overwhelming evidence that vaccines protect children, two events caused some parents to be skeptical. First, a study published in a prestigious medical journal had linked childhood vaccines to autism. The study had a big problem. It wasn't true. The doctor behind the study had fabricated the data, and the journal in which it was published took the unprecedented step of apologizing and retracting the article. Dozens of studies followed, all finding no connection between vaccines and autism. The fabricated story might have been all the evidence people needed to dismiss the false association between vaccines and autism. But something else happened that reignited the anti-vaccine movement, and it came in the form of story. An attractive celebrity, a former Playboy model, publicly dismissed the evidence that vaccines are good, and she said she knew The measles vaccine caused her son's autism. My son is my science, she told a cheering studio audience. If you've listened this far, then you know exactly why the celebrity had an outsized influence on the narrative. Because personal stories are irresistible. Stories trump data. So what should the medical community have done to dispel the anti-vaccine myth? tell stories of their own, stories of children who suffer from encephalitis, or stories of families who lost their children to a disease that had all been eliminated from the United States. According to Dr. Maisel, when scientists encounter stories that promote unscientific approaches to health and healthcare, they should deploy an evidence-based counter-narrative. What parents need to hear are counter-narratives. That's what a British site called the Vaccine Knowledge Project intends to do. They publish information on infectious diseases by way of content that is designed with a non-specialist in mind. The people behind the site know that non-specialists relate best to stories which is why the site is stuffed with heart-wrenching stories of individuals who suffer from diseases such as the measles. Visitors to the site will learn the story of Sarah Clow. Clow was not vaccinated against measles as a child. The measles attacked her entire body, including her brain. She was in a coma for eight weeks and is now deaf and partially blind. Visitors to the site will also learn the story of Sarah Walton, who caught the measles when she was only 11 months old. Although she recovered, Sarah contracted a viral infection connected to her measles 24 years later. It destroyed her central nervous system. Sarah's mother, who is Sarah's caregiver, narrates the video by Sarah's bedside as Sarah lies on the bed, largely unresponsive, with a feeding tube in her nose. As an expert in the spread of diseases, Melinda Gates knows her facts. She also knows how to deliver facts effectively by wrapping them in story. She once told the Huffington Post, Women in the developing world know the power of vaccines. They will walk 10 kilometers in the heat with their child and line up to get a vaccine because they have seen death. We have forgotten what measles deaths look like. But in Africa... The women know death, and they want their children to survive. Melinda Gates' interview on the subject of the measles vaccine went viral across social media because she had provided a powerful counter-narrative to dispel inaccurate information. Yes, many people had forgotten what the illness really looked like. 
stories of real people suffering real complications from not getting vaccinated served as a powerful reminder. Storytelling matters because what you don't understand can and often does hurt you. The next time you're attempting to make the complex understandable, whether you're in sales, healthcare, business, or teaching, use analogies and personal stories to replace abstractions and jargon. It might bring your topic into focus and, in some cases, save lives. The Storyteller's Secret Statistical evidence and industry jargon are the least effective means to educate a general audience about complex topics. Personal stories and analogies help people make sense of information and ideas they know little about. Chapter 13. The $98 Pants That Launched an Empire Story is everything, which means it's our job to tell better stories. Kevin Spacey A $98 pair of pants gave Sarah the kick in the butt she needed to start her own business. For eight months, the white pants hung in Sarah's closet. Every time she tried them on, she didn't like what she saw in the mirror. Traditional women's undergarments did not seem to help. They were uncomfortable and unsightly. In desperation, Sarah took a pair of scissors and cut off the feet from a pair of pantyhose. It solved her problem. Sarah wanted to turn her invention into a business. She was selling fax machines door-to-door at the time and had never taken a business class. She reached out to patent lawyers who charged $5,000 for their services. Since Sarah only had $5,000 in her savings, she did her own homework and patented the idea herself. Most people told Sarah her idea was insane, but their opinions did not dissuade her. If one door closed, Sarah looked for another. You see, Sarah's father had taught her about the power of failure. At the dinner table, Sarah's father would ask, what did you fail at today? He'd be disappointed if she did not have anything to offer. Failure meant she was trying new things. One day, Sarah placed a cold call to a buyer at Neiman Marcus, who agreed to meet with her. Sarah left her Atlanta apartment, which had doubled as her factory and global headquarters, carried a red backpack that held her samples, and boarded a plane to Dallas. The buyer gave Sarah 10 minutes to make a pitch. Within a couple of minutes, it became clear to Sarah that the buyer was losing interest, so she decided to demo the product herself explaining her product through her own story. Sarah dragged the buyer into the bathroom, where she modeled the product, and sure enough, the buyer agreed to stock Sarah's footless pantyhose in seven stores. Twelve years later, Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx, appeared on the cover of Forbes as the youngest self-made female billionaire in the world. Sarah Blakely's founder's story is one that she tells often in television interviews, speeches, and even on the Spanx website. The About Sarah section of Spanx.com shows a photo of Sarah in her original white pants that hung in her closet as she is holding the red backpack. The white pants and the red backpack both play a starring role in the product story. The Storyteller's Tools Sarah Blakely sold 10 million products without spending a dime in advertising. Blakely leveraged the power of her personal story to make the product relatable and irresistible. Blakely has also learned the difference between a story and a good story. Here's a story. Sarah invented a product, sold it to a department store, and made a fortune. The preceding sentence meets the definition of story. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. But it's not educational. It doesn't draw you in. It's not relatable. And if it's none of those things, it has no chance to inspire. Remember, the elements of a good story include struggle, conflict, and resolution. A good story also has specific details to help the listener see herself in the founder's story. So a detail, such as Sarah's seat number on an airplane, that would be irrelevant to the story. 
The fact that Sarah's $98 pair of white pants hung in the closet for eight months because she didn't like the way she looked in them, that's something that women can relate to. That's an important detail. Sarah did not just bring her samples to Dallas. She carried them in a red backpack. Sarah sold her products in red packages, a color that stood out among the other brands of pantyhose on the store shelves. The red backpack is an important symbol in the story. Sarah did not just pitch a buyer. She dragged the buyer at Neiman Marcus into the bathroom to demonstrate how the footless pantyhose would look. Specifics add credibility to the story, and they help to transport the listeners into the founder's world. Jeffrey Zacks is the director of the Dynamic Cognition Lab at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. Using brain imaging technology, he studies the blood flow in the brains of people as they read a book. His mission is to understand why people get lost in books. According to Zacks, our brains make vivid mental simulations of the sights, sounds, tastes, and movements that we read or hear about. When we hear a speaker share a detailed sequence of events, the same regions of our brain are stimulated as if the experience were happening to us in real life. Most new products today enter crowded categories. A vivid description of how that product came to exist is often the difference between a product that sits on a shelf and one that catches on. For example, Walmart.com carries 4,000 headphones. Now, a consumer can choose from in-ear, on-ear, over-ear headphones. There are studio, sports, wireless, DJ-quality headphones. There's even noise-canceling, noise-isolating, and wireless headphones. The entrepreneurs at Seoul Republic make a high-quality headphone. But they know quality is not enough to capture the imagination of overwhelmed consumers. And so they differentiate their products through the story they share about the company's guiding philosophy. Seoul Republic co-founders Kevin Lee, Scott Hicks, and Seth Combs share a vision of changing the way people listen to music by making great-sounding headphones at a more reasonable price than the high-end products on the market. In one interview, Combs explained the story of the company's founding. He said, we sat at Chrissy Field in San Francisco on the beach, and we wrote a philosophy statement. Our first line is, we are music lovers committed to changing the world one listener at a time. That was a key takeaway. Another takeaway is that if music sounds better, it feels better. If we can get headphones out to everyone that sound good, they'll feel better, and it's going to change the world. It was the passion that drove us. It led us to the name. SOUL is an acronym that stands for Soundtrack of Life. Every great moment has a soundtrack that goes with it, from listening to your parents' wedding song to your own wedding songs. These are songs and moments that connect with you emotionally and you carry with you until your last breath. We're a new music lifestyle company that happens to make headphones. Personal and vivid stories like the one you just heard Breathe life into products and ideas, whether it's an idea for a new headset or an undergarment. Speaking at a business and marketing conference, the actor Kevin Spacey offered the following advice. Good content making is not a crapshoot. We know how this works, and it has always been about the story. Audiences have spoken. They want stories. They're dying for it. They are rooting for us to give them something to talk about, to carry it with them on the bus and to the hairdresser, to tweet, blog, Facebook, make fan pages, silly gifts, engage with it with a passion and intimacy that a blockbuster movie can only dream of. All we have to do is give it to them. The prize fruit is shinier, juicier than ever before. A good story can help explain an idea. A great story educates, entertains, and ultimately fires up our collective imagination. Tell great stories. The Storyteller's Secret 
Successful founders educate their customers with relatable stories of how they created the product to solve a problem, often one they face themselves. They share those stories with specific, concrete, and relevant details to transport the listener into their world. Chapter 14 Japan Unleashes Its Best Storytellers to Win Olympic Gold on my desk in the Oval Office, I have a little sign that says, There is no limit to what a man can do or where he can go if he doesn't mind who gets the credit. Ronald Reagan Mamie Sato enjoyed an active lifestyle. In college, her days were filled with classes, running, swimming, and cheerleading. One day, the 19-year-old began to feel pain in her right ankle. The pain turned out to be cancer. Within just weeks of the first symptom, she would lose her leg to the disease. Sato was in deep despair, but she returned to college. At the university, she says she was saved by sport. She enjoyed setting goals and beating them. She said, I developed a new confidence. Most of all, I learned that what was important was what I had, not what I had lost. Sato trained hard and earned a spot as an athlete at the Athens 2004 Paralympic Games, competing in the long jump event. She competed in Beijing in 2008, and once again in London in 2012. But it was during her preparation for the London Paralympic Games that her life would take another sudden turn. At 2.46 p.m. on March 11, 2011, a 9.0 magnitude earthquake hit 230 miles northeast of Tokyo, 15 miles beneath the sea. One hour later, waves up to 30 feet high rushed ashore the Japanese coast, creating a wall of terror, killing more than 15,000 people and destroying the Fukushima nuclear power plant. In less than seven minutes... Sato's hometown was covered in water. Entire homes were swept away with families still inside. Tuna boats that were once in the bay were grounded in the middle of town. Puddles of water stood in spaces where homes once stood. Very little was left. Six days went by until Sato learned of her family's fate. They had survived. Sato and a group of athletes collected messages and supplies to bring to the ravished town. More than 200 athletes made 1,000 visits to the area, bringing hope and inspiration to tens of thousands of children and adults. Only then did I see the true power of sport, to create new dreams and smiles, to give hope, to bring people together, Sato said. Sato shared her story in September of 2013 as she stood at a podium to lead off Tokyo's presentation at the 125th session of the International Olympic Committee meeting in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Members of the IOC were watching the presentations to award one city the right to host the 2020 Summer Olympics. The two other finalists, Istanbul and Madrid, were said to have had the upper hand. In formal Japanese business presentations, the more senior executive or speaker has the opening role. In a traditional Japanese Olympic bid, a senior leader, such as the prime minister, would have been expected to speak first. But just 10 days before the finals, the team assembling the presentation realized they needed to break the rules. They made the decision to kick off the presentation with an emotional story and concluded there would be no better storyteller than Mamie Sato. They had one problem to overcome. Sato had never given a speech in English. I had a lot of jitters, she said. My legs were shaking in rehearsals. Sato was told that speaking fluent English was less important than delivering a passionate message and a personal story. I was a runner. I was a swimmer. I was even a cheerleader, Sato told the Olympic Committee about her life before cancer. Once she returned to college and took up competitive sports, her attitude changed. When the IOC announced that Tokyo had won, hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets of cities and towns across Japan to celebrate. Sato had become a household name. Sato's personal story is only part of the story of how Japan won the right to host the 2020 Summer Olympic Games.
The final presentation the Tokyo team delivered in Buenos Aires did not just begin differently than the judges expected from a Japanese presentation. The entire 45-minute presentation was created for maximum emotional impact, and storytelling would play a starring role. The Storyteller's Tools The Japanese contingent all employed the storyteller's art. When Sato stepped off the podium, she introduced the next speaker, who introduced the next speaker, who introduced the next one. In all, eight speakers took their turns pitching the benefits of holding the Olympics in Tokyo. All of the speakers, including Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, shared stories of how sports changed their lives. Some speakers were assigned to tell the story of how the citizens of Tokyo treat their guests. They did so because an undercurrent running through the judging process was the fact that the IOC wanted to avoid cities with safety risks and instability. The IOC judges said Tokyo made the case the Olympics would remain in a, quote, safe pair of hands. For example, in one memorable reference, presenter Crystal Takigawa spoke of Tokyo's selfless hospitality and announced that every year, Tokyo citizens find and return about $30 million that tourists had lost or misplaced. If you lose something, you will most certainly get it back, she said. According to The Guardian newspaper, previous Tokyo bids had been praised for their competence but criticized for lacking passion. The IOC judges credited the Tokyo team for infusing their presentation with emotion and passion. Mami Sato's story set the pace for the rest of the presentation. Having a storyteller like Sato available is a plus, but only if she's allowed to tell her story. Emotional business presentations have drama, hero, villains, and a collection of voices. SAP unleashes the power of 65,000 storytellers. When SAP chief executive Bill McDermott hired Julie Rome to head the marketing department for the global technology giant, he wasn't looking for a traditional marketing director. McDermott hired Rome as the senior vice president for global marketing, but gave her a title more descriptive of her role. He called her chief storyteller. Rome told me that McDermott hired her to simplify the SAP story and to make the company's message human, authentic, and irrelevant to the lives of its customers. The chief storytelling officer is a thoroughly modern title, according to Fast Company magazine. As more leaders recognize the need for corporate storytelling, there's a corresponding rise in the number of executives who hold the title. The best CSOs recognize they're not alone in telling a brand story. Julie Rome at SAP once told me, It's false to say I'm the only storyteller. We've created tools to allow everyone to be storytellers. What she means is that SAP has more than 65,000 employees around the world, and most of them have stories of how customers are using the company's software to run their businesses. It's impossible for one person in the marketing department to tell those stories. So SAP creates platforms to let everyone in the organization become a storyteller because you never know when a story is going to happen. For example, SAP created a smartphone app called Share Your Story. The app is a video tool that enables anyone in the SAP universe, employees, customers, partners, to record a video testimonial and submit the video clip. The marketing department captures the video and then reviews, edits, and pushes the video out across the company and on social media. Julie Rome says, if only one team creates and shares stories, you'll miss a lot of opportunities in the social media age. The ultimate goal is education. SAP software can seem complex to new customers. Share Your Story makes it easier for SAP salespeople to educate customers by showing customer stories on any mobile device they happen to be carrying on a new business pitch. 
Since the videos are categorized, a sales professional can pull up a video that's relevant to the customer's issue. SAP has the right idea. A study in the Harvard Business Review found that customers are often overloaded by too much information. The researchers found that when selling complex products, it's more effective to tell vivid stories of other customers and their experiences with the product. Through its digital platforms, SAP is unleashing the stories of 65,000 storytellers throughout the organization. Bill McDermott and Julie Rome are the senior leaders, but they recognize that education comes in the form of stories that are being created every day by members of the larger team. Every brand can craft better stories. The secret is to tap the collective wisdom of all the brand storytellers. The Storyteller's Secret Successful organizations and companies share the stage with their best storytellers. Brands are a collection of narratives. Unleash your best stories. Chapter 15 A Funny Look at the Most Popular TED Talk of All Time If they're laughing, they're listening. Sir Ken Robinson who calls you Sir Ken Robinson? My children, I insist on it. That's how Sir Ken Robinson, a prominent educator and TED star, opened an interview on National Public Radio. One of Robinson's endearing qualities is a disarming sense of humor. But like many of the storytellers you're hearing about in this audiobook, his early years were marked by pain and struggle, tension and triumph, the stuff stories are made of. Born in Liverpool in 1950, Robinson was one of seven children. His father played semi-professional soccer and had dreams of his son following in his footsteps and perhaps taking the family's soccer legacy to the next level. The father's hopes were dashed when Robinson contracted polio at the age of four, causing partial paralysis in one leg. Undeterred, Robinson would seek success on the field of academics. He poured himself into his studies and, in 1968, attended Breton Hall College as an English and a drama major. In 1981, Robinson completed a Ph.D. at the University of London with a specialization in theater and drama in education. A list of credentials does not make a storyteller. But in Robinson's case, his focus on drama explains part of the reason his TED Talk would become a viral sensation the most popular TED Talk of all time. Robinson was a notable voice in creativity, education, and human potential long before his now-famous TED Talk. Queen Elizabeth had knighted him in 2003 for his contributions to the field of creativity and the arts, but it was his 18-minute TED Talk that catapulted him to the world stage. The subject of Robinson's talk was education, specifically, and why our educational system fails to nurture creativity. While this is certainly a topic of wide popular interest, this alone does not explain how an educator's 18-minute discussion has been viewed more times than any other TED Talk in TED's 30-year history. So what does explain it? Robinson himself may have provided the answer. If they're laughing... They're listening, he said. The Storyteller's Tools Ken Robinson tells compelling stories that reinforce his theme that the educational system needs to be retooled. As an educator, Robinson knows nobody will stick around for his stories if they've mentally checked out. The brain does not pay attention to boring things, writes University of Washington biologist John Medina. Ken Robinson is anything but boring. In his TED Talk, the laughs start early. Here are several portions of Robinson's presentation that elicited the biggest laughs in the first five minutes. If you're at a dinner party and you say you work in education, actually, you're not often at dinner parties, frankly. If you work in education, you're not asked. And you're never asked back, curiously. That's strange to me. But if you are... 
And you say to somebody, you know, they say, what do you do? And you say you work in education. You can see the blood run from their face. They're like, oh, my God, why me? My one night out all week. In another example, Robinson said, I heard a great story recently, I love telling it, of a little girl who was in a drawing lesson. She was six, and she was at the back drawing. And the teacher said this girl hardly ever paid attention. And in the drawing lesson, she did. The teacher was fascinated. She went over to her and said, What are you drawing? And the girl said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, But nobody knows what God looks like. And the girl said, They will in a minute. In the first five minutes of his presentation, Ken Robinson elicited about ten laughs from the audience. At two laughs per minute, that makes Robinson's talk funnier than the movie Anchorman at 1.6 laughs per minute. Humor is an emotionally charged event. Humor is what John Medina calls an emotionally charged event, much like joy, fear, or surprise. Medina says when the brain detects an emotionally charged event, the amygdala releases dopamine into the system. Because dopamine greatly aids memory and information processing, you could say the post-it note reads, remember this. Getting the brain to put a chemical post-it note on a given piece of information means that information is going to be more robustly processed. It's what every teacher, parent, and ad executive wants. Humor enhances learning in any language. In a study of international students from 10 countries, the researchers found that the students learn best when the lecturers grab their attention with humor. One study participant said, I like funny lectures. He or she can make lectures interesting and not too boring. Some lectures are boring. That's the problem. Listeners want to be engaged and entertained. People want to learn and laugh. Good storytellers teach and have fun. When Jon Stewart stepped down as host of Comedy Central's The Daily Show after 16 years, it was big news because Stewart had become a significant source of information for members of the millennial generation. Many Americans in the age range of 18 to 34 cited The Daily Show as their primary source of news. Stewart often beat the established nightly news programs in the ratings among that age group. The success of The Daily Show proved the secret to high ratings is a charismatic host who combines educational content with humor. You may be saying to yourself, that's fine, but I'm not funny, and so this advice is of no use to me. The funny thing about humor is you don't need to tell a joke to get a laugh. You just have to be able to recognize a funny situation. Great storytellers ditch the urge to be clever and just tell people about an experience or an event that elicited a smile. If something made them chuckle, there's a good chance their audience will too. The Serious Reason to Use Humor The end of laughter is followed by the height of listening, according to sales coach Jeffrey Gittimer. It's important to note that storytellers like Ken Robinson use humor not for the laugh itself, but for what follows, to grab attention and tee up the key story that supports their product or their idea. For example, once the laugh subsided in Ken Robinson's TED Talk, he told the story of Jillian Lynn. He said, Jillian Lynn, have you heard of her? Some people have. She's a choreographer, and everybody knows her work. She did Cats and Phantom of the Opera. She's wonderful. Jillian and I had lunch one day, and I said, how did you get to be a dancer? It was interesting. When she was at school, she was really hopeless. And the school, in the 30s, wrote to her parents and said, we think Jillian has a learning disorder. She couldn't concentrate. She was fidgeting. I think now they'd say she had ADHD, wouldn't you? But this was the 1930s, and ADHD had not been invented at that point. It wasn't an available condition. People weren't aware they could have that. Anyway, she went to see the specialist. In the end, the doctor went and sat next to Jillian and said, I've listened to all these things your mother's told me. I need to speak to her privately. 
Wait here, we'll be back. We won't be very long. And they went, and they left her. But as they went out of the room, he turned on the radio that was sitting on his desk. And when they got out, he said to her mother, just stand and watch her. And the minute they left the room, she was on her feet, moving to the music. And they watched for a few minutes. And he turned to her mother and said, Mrs. Lynn, Jillian isn't sick. She's a dancer. Take her to dance school. Robinson wrote a book called The Element, about following your life's true mission, where natural aptitude meets personal passion. Robinson says there's a serious reason for finding one's element. Very many people lack purpose in their lives. The evidence of this is everywhere, in the sheer numbers of people who are not interested in the work they do, in the growing numbers of students who feel alienated by the education system, and in the rising use everywhere of antidepressants, alcohol, and painkillers. Nobody is going to listen to a story if they're not paying attention, and if they're not paying attention, they will not learn. Robinson's serious themes would struggle to find a larger audience if it had not been for his humorous take on everyday situations. The Storyteller's Secret Effective educators serve up serious stories with a side of funny. Chapter 16 Dirt, Cigars, and Sweaty Socks Put a Marketer on the Map Quality storytelling always wins. Always. Gary Vaynerchuk Nazi Germany invaded Belarus in 1941. More than one million Jews were killed in the occupation, about 90% of the Jewish population. The Soviet Red Army drove out the Germans in 1944. The USSR would occupy the country for the next 47 years. And life for its residents, especially the country's remaining Jews, was difficult, to say the least. When, in 1978, Jews were given special permission to leave the country, a man named Sasha seized the opportunity to move his family to Queens, New York. America was a place where you could build a life for yourself according to your own rules, and you didn't have to wait six hours in line to buy a loaf of bread either, according to Sasha's son, Gary Vaynerchuk. Gary was three years old when his family began a new life in America. The American economy was tanking in those days, and Gary watched his dad work as a stock clerk in a liquor store to make ends meet. Gary remembers the tough times, but he doesn't recall his parents complaining, ever. My parents were hungry, hungry to provide for their family and hungry to win, says Gary. Although Gary adopted his family's work ethic to become a successful entrepreneur and to help his father run a successful wine store, Gary's storytelling skill launched his personal brand on social media. Armed with passion, knowledge, and a Jets helmet that doubled as a spit bucket, Gary V, as he's known, launched Wine Library TV in 2006. It was the first video wine blog, and one of the first video blogs of any field. Using a simple flip video camera, Gary recorded himself talking about wine, and he posted the videos to a platform that had started exactly one year earlier, YouTube. Gary Vaynerchuk's first episode had a simple set, a circular desk, three bottles of wine, wine glasses, and the jet spit bucket. A video edit occurs about four minutes into the 12-minute episode, Vaynerchuk explains that the camera was not working correctly and he had to run out to Best Buy to buy a new one. Vaynerchuk was very transparent from the very beginning. Watch me for two seconds and you know exactly who I am and what I stand for. Authenticity is key, he says. By the time Vaynerchuk ended the show 1,000 episodes later, he had established himself as one of the preeminent storytellers on social media. But make no mistake, Wine Library TV was not created for the sole purpose of selling wine over the Internet. Vaynerchuk says he started it to build equity in his personal brand. Storytelling would play a key role in advancing that brand. And not just any story, but a story only Vaynerchuk could tell in his unique and authentic style.
The Storyteller's Tools Although 97% of all wines sold in the United States are under $10 a bottle, most wine critics and reviewers use terms that only wine aficionados can understand. Vaynerchuk did something different. Although he was clearly proficient in the language of wine royalty, he spoke in language of the commoner. Vaynerchuk made wine approachable. The experts, he said, swirl and smell and slurp and spit, and then spout the same classic terminology every time, how the bouquet was rose petals or the finish was silk. I would stick my nose in my glass, suck in a mouthful of air and wine, and the only thing running through my head would be, man, this really tastes like big league chew. Or if this isn't a whatchamacallit, I don't know what is. It's not that I did not appreciate the complexity of an excellent vintage. I just didn't see why we had to use the same 45-cent words to describe my experience when drinking it. Conan Eats Dirt, Cigars, Wet Rocks, and Sweaty Socks It didn't take long for Vaynerchuk's authentic storytelling style to attract fans and generate buzz. In 2007, comedian and talk show host Conan O'Brien invited Gary Vaynerchuk to appear on his show to teach the viewers on how to train their palate for wine tasting. The next 10 minutes were social media gold. Conan acknowledged that many people think of wine critics as snobs. It's very intimidating, Conan said. When I'm in a restaurant and they ask me about wine, I feel like I need to know a lot, like I'm not educated enough. I think a lot of us feel inferior. The first wine that Vaynerchuk featured on the show was a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, which is often described as having notes of grapefruit and grass. So Vaynerchuk squeezed a grapefruit into a dish of grass and ate it. Conan did the same. The next wine was a Sancerre. To help understand minerality, Vaynerchuk gave Conan a wet rock to lick. Next came the red wines. Since red wines are often described as having a characteristic of the soil from which the grapes are grown, as well as fruit and tobacco, Vaynerchuk mixed dirt, cherries, and a cigar all into a dish, and he ate a handful. Conan's jokes and expressions during the segment brought down the house. For the last wine, a French Burgundy, Vaynerchuk wanted Conan to try a sweaty sock. So he reached down, took off his shoes, and held up a sock. Gary smelled it and said, This is really the essence of Burgundy. Since French Burgundy is also said to have a hint of asparagus, Vaynerchuk wrapped the sock around a piece of asparagus and offered it to Conan. No, no, I'm not going to eat your sock, Conan said. I'll eat my own. And with perfect comedic timing. The video of that wine tasting segment went viral. It's still available on YouTube. And in that moment, a social media star was born. Know your stuff, but be true to your brand. Vaynerchuk is widely considered a social media powerhouse, but he defines himself as a storytelling entrepreneur because he understands that social impact is the direct result of creating content people will want to see and read. I'm only interested in one thing, the one thing that binds us all together, he said. No matter what your profession is, no matter what you do, our job is to tell our story, and that's never going to change. The way you make money, says Gary Vaynerchuk, the way you make great impact, the way you make great change is through great storytelling. It's always been that way and always will be that way. Vaynerchuk parlayed his content into a powerful personal brand. It now extends to books, keynote speeches, and a digital consulting agency. Vaynerchuk acknowledges he rubs some people the wrong way. For example, his speeches are laced with profanity. The descriptions of his presentations on YouTube often come with a warning that the material contains curse words. Some people may find the language acceptable, others don't. The point is, Vaynerchuk stays true to his personality from day one, 
And in today's social media environment, authenticity is rewarded. According to Vaynerchuk, your brand will be unique and interesting because you are unique and interesting. Don't try to put on an act to imitate me or anyone else who's had some success with social marketing. You'll lose because people can sniff out a poser from a mile away. Storytelling is not a press release, Vaynerchuk reminds us. You need to be authentic from the heart, not a coal-minded press release that means nothing to anybody, Vaynerchuk once said. The opposite of the press release is being in the trenches, sharing your personal story and your customer's story on every available platform and doing it from the heart. He says it doesn't matter what you're selling. Identify what makes you unique and interesting and have the courage to be authentic across all the social media platforms from which you share your story. Be yourself, put out awesome content, and people will be interested in what you have to say. The Storyteller's Secret Successful brands, individuals, and companies see themselves as storytellers first. They go to where their audiences are living their lives and, once there, create authentic, personal, and passionate stories that are tailored to fit the way their audiences consume content. Chapter 17. A Burger with a Side of Story People will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. Maya Angelou Danny never wanted to be a lawyer, so how did he find himself having dinner with his Uncle Richard and Aunt Virginia just 12 hours before taking the law school entrance exam? Something didn't feel right. I can't believe I'm doing this LSAT thing tomorrow. I don't even want to be a lawyer, Danny confided. So why don't you just do what you've been thinking about your whole life, Richard asked. What's that? All you've ever talked about is food. Open a restaurant, Richard suggested. Uncle Richard was right. Food and restaurants had consumed Danny's attention since he was a little boy. While most people vividly remember the sights and sounds from trips they took when they were young, few people can recall the exact dishes they ate at those destinations. Danny was different. When I was four, I fell in love with Stone Crab at the Lagoon Restaurant in Miami Beach. Over the next years, I remember savoring variations of key lime pie in Key West, trying Dungeness crab and sailing abalone at San Francisco's Fisherman's Wharf, and having a lobster roll in Agonquit, Maine. Yes, Danny was different, but he didn't know it until his uncle brought it to his attention over dinner in 1983. Danny took the LSAT the next morning, but never applied to law school. Instead, he left a $125,000 a year job as a commissioned salesman to make $250 a week as an assistant manager in a restaurant. Danny's salary plummeted, but he was on a high. Danny looks back at his uncle's suggestion as the greatest gift he ever received. Danny had found his calling. For two years, Danny studied everything about the restaurant industry. He describes a return trip from Rome as a scribble fest, an eight-hour plane trip that wasn't enough time to write down all of the ideas he was bringing home. Danny said the feeling was like an intense desire, a burning sense of urgency. Danny did not go looking for a career. It grabbed him by the shoulder and wouldn't let go. Three years after that fateful dinner, Danny Meyer opened his first restaurant in New York City, Union Square Cafe. Meyer's Union Square Hospitality Group now owns and manages some of the most acclaimed restaurants in town. In 2001, Meyer tried something a little different. He opened a stand in Madison Square Park selling hot dogs. It lost $5,000 in its first year. It lost $7,500 in its second year, before finally breaking even in its third year. In the fourth year, Danny Meyer turned the cart into a 20-by-20-foot 20 20 kiosk, and he added burgers, shakes, and sundaes to the menu. Shake Shack was born. 
14 years later, Shake Shack had more than 60 locations around the world. On January 30th, 2014, Shake Shack went public. Shares doubled on their first day of trading, valuing the company at $1.6 billion. From the opening day of his first restaurant, Meyer knew that patrons wanted good food at a fair price. But they'd return because of how they were made to feel. Hospitality is king. The emotional experience guests have at one of Meyer's restaurants means everything to him. According to Meyer, a company's culture sets the foundation for its success, and a great culture is built on the company's stories. The Storyteller's Tools Culture is a way to describe how we do things around here, says Danny Meyer. If you can use stories to provide examples, you get closer to perpetuating and advancing the culture. Danny Meyer tells stories, lots of them. He tells stories in television interviews, he tells stories in keynote speeches, and most importantly, He tells stories to educate his cooks, chefs, sommeliers, waiters, and waitresses in the art of customer service. Stories educate employees on the fine art of service because they bring abstract concepts to life. For example, if Meyer simply tells his staff that they are empowered to do what is in the best interest of the customer, the concept will not have the same impact as the stories he tells. The human brain does not handle abstractions well. It's wired for story. According to Meyer, over time, we can always train for technical prowess. We can teach people how to deliver bread or olives, take orders for drinks, or to present menus, or how to describe specials. Training for emotional skills is next to impossible. A writer for Delta Sky Magazine interviewed Danny Meyer on the subject of building a winning culture. Meyer told one story that so perfectly captured what he was trying to attain, the writer himself could not help but include it in the magazine article. The writer said the story even made an impact on him. It went like this Meyer had taken a business trip to Florida. When he got to his hotel room, he just wanted to kick back, order a cheeseburger, And watch his beloved Cardinals take on the San Francisco Giants in a playoff game. When he discovered that the hotel did not carry Fox Sports in the room and the game was blacked out on his iPad, he went down to the bar. The TV was tuned into the Jets Patriots pregame show, but nobody was in the bar, and the waiter switched the channel over to the baseball game. Later, the bar started to fill up a bit, and the television magically switched over to the Jets game. When the waiter came over to check on him, he noticed somebody had changed the channel. It's not a big deal, Meyer told him. I'll just take my cheeseburger over to the other lobby bar. Nobody's over there. But the waiter insisted, No, that's not right. You were here first. Let me take care of this for you. The waiter returned with the remote control, switched the channel back to the baseball game, removed the batteries from the remote, and handed them to Danny. Danny Meyer said, I'm getting shivers just telling you this. The burger was okay, not great, but I'll never forget that he handed me the batteries. Storytelling supports our culture, Danny Meyer once told me. My hope is that through storytelling, I'm able to name some things that you already knew in your heart but had not named. Through stories, Meyer unlocks hospitality concepts for his staff, allowing them to become more concrete. This allows them to repeat and perfect the concept, to teach it to others, and in the process, cement it as part of the team's culture. It's nearly impossible for a restaurant owner to train dozens, hundreds, and in Meyer's case, thousands of employees for every potential scenario. Before pilots take to the sky, they spend hours in a flight simulator. Stories act as a flight simulator for real world scenarios. Psychology professor Keith Oatley and his research team at the University of Toronto have found that detailed stories stimulate the same neurological regions of the brain that would be activated if we were encountering the situation in real life. The more detailed the description, The more vivid and evocative the story, 
the more deeply it sears itself into the listener's brain. It helps that Danny Meyer's stories are vivid and emotional. The closer he can bring his listeners to the restaurant floor, the more impactful the story becomes, and it has a greater chance of leading to desired behaviors. For example, another hospitality concept that Danny Meyer created is ABCD, which stands for Always Be Connecting Dots. In an industry that many people see as a basic transaction, I give you money, you give me food, Meyer encourages his staff to connect information that can turn a guest's experience into a richer, more memorable event. It sounds good on paper, but it's still an abstract concept. Meyer's stories bring that concept to life.